All right. So we're in uh, uh, Matthew or Matthew. I want to Matthew. On the <laughs> we are. Okay. Yeah, we're in uh, we're in Colossians chapter three, and uh, we actually have uh, uh, a couple of verses to kind of finish, or at least a verse to finish up the section, and then we get into uh, the next section. And so we're going to be lumping uh, verses fifteen through seventeen together. If we have time, we'll start on the rest of uh, that, this book, but I think that this discussion alone will probably take a good portion of our time. So we're looking at uh, Colossians chapter 5, uh, 3, verses 15 through 17, and I'll read them for you. Unless someone else, would someone like to read them for us? Going once, going twice. <laughs> Sure. 15 through 17. 17. Yep. <laughs> and let the let peace, the peace of, of Go ahead, Dan. Flip, flip a coin. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, James. Go, go ahead. Colossians three fifteen through 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in your dwell in you richly, as you teach, and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord, in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. All right. Amen. Amen. That's, that's boy, this is going to be a good, I think this is going to be a good one for us for a change, huh? Instead, I won't have too many, hopefully my toes won't be too sore by the time we're done with this. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Um, this peace that Paul is referring to here is, is uh, the same, I think he's impl implying the same thing that we talk about when we talk about the Hebrew word for peace, shalom, which is that general sense of well-being and prosperity that God provides uh, when we are in his will. And uh, command here, interestingly enough, is not just for peace for the individual, uh, but more so peace for the body. Notice this is, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace. That's, if we were to apply that today, that would really change the way that we approach church at many times, I think. Uh, because we would be much more inclined to, um, to figure out ways that we can provide uh, that we would do things in a, in a peaceful manner, in a way that would bring uh, unity to the body. You know, I've I've been in churches where, you know, they have fought over the, at times I think the strangest things. Um, I remember one church that I was pastoring in. Uh, there was a vote taken on whether or not to uh, carpet the fellowship hall. And uh, the, the complaint came out that, uh, you know, if we did that, that there would be a problem because we had a lot of dinners 
down in the, the fellowship hall. And, and of course, one of the cheapest dinners is always spaghetti, right? And, you know, their thought was someone's going to pour sauce all over the carpet and it's going to get stained really quickly. And it'll be hard to clean up just tile or linoleum or something like that, which would be a whole lot less of, a, of an issue to clean up. And uh, it was a rather, it, it was a, it was a knockdown drag out fight until the vote came. And then the vote, they passed on the carpet. That was what the pastor wanted. The chief pastor wanted carpet. They passed 51%. And I said to him afterwards, I said, do you think it's wise to go ahead? He says, we took it. We, we, we won with a 51%. We're putting it in. I said, oh, okay. You know? And uh, we did. And the very first time we had a, a meal there, there was a big stain afterwards that never came out of that carpet. Yeah. You know, he got his way. And sometimes, you know, the, the strangest thing is that peace uh, will, will destroy our feet. It could be carpet, could be, you know, whether we say, I, I told you about the church in St. Louis that, that split over, you pronounce the word hallelujah or alleluia, H or A as your beginning letter of that, of that word and literally split a congregation in two. Um, this, this word for peace is a, a sense of well-being within the body and not just uh, individually. It's also interesting, notice it says the word, the term is let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is the idea uh, that could be often translated in the Greek in other uh, non-biblical sources as umpire. It's it's uh, became a much more widely associated with the idea of judgment in any kind. The fact that the congregation was to do nothing without the peace of Christ as the environment which overshadowed their actions was important for the early church. And so often that's one of the problems we run into in our church is that uh, uh, we think that, uh, you know, 51% is a good enough vote. And uh, and maybe it is. I don't know. Um, the guy's still the pastor, so I guess he must know what he's doing, right? So um, it goes on to say that you you should uh, you were called to peace, and then it says and be thankful. It's interesting. This idea of thankfulness is something that appears multiple times. Uh, in uh, not only Colossians, but in other passage, other books, but specifically Colossians. Let's see if I can find my notes for it. Of course, probably not. As I called it up here very quickly. Let's, and I'm not quickly finding them. I'll find them as I go along. All right. So we're told to have, uh, to do this and to be thankful. Uh, this idea of thankfulness is obviously is, is uh, important. And I think that one of the things we find out is that uh, when we lose peace with God, we begin to go off in wrong directions and, and we become out of the will of God. And I think when we're out of the will of God, morning, Tom, uh, we lose our thankfulness. We stop being thankful for what God has done for us. And uh, when we're out of the will of God, we stop being thankful. It's very possible that we start complaining more too. 
So that must mean that I'm out of the will of the Lord a lot with all the complaining that we sometimes do, right? Interestingly enough, um, Psalm uh, 32 and Psalm 51 talk about that when we confess our sins to God, that uh, his song returns to us. Yeah. We, we won't take the time to do this, but we could delve into the concept of new song. And new song comes as a result of having a change in our lives spiritually. And when we become a, a believer, God puts a new song in our hearts. It's mentioned about seven times throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament, the terms new song. And uh, in Revelation, it says, and they sang a new song, you know, and it was to the Lamb. Um, so those are some of the concepts that, that come out of this. Now, as we continue on with this, um, we continue in verse 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. Now, I'm going to make a suggestion to you that you uh, uh, deface your Bible and you take a, 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 a pen or a pencil and you cross out the next word and. And that what you read it so that it will read like this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms of hymns, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your heart towards God. We'll come to that as we, we, as we do this, but I want you to point out to you that I believe that we, each of us, uh, can admonish and teach each other uh, with all wisdom as we are singing songs that are godly songs. All right, so let's take a look at this. It says, let the word of, of Christ dwell in you rich, richly. Uh, since peace comes from, God, from Christ, the word that comes from him should also bring us peace. Colossians, uh, the Colossians were to look back to the words of Christ, not, a, uh, not within or ahead to the words of Christ that he might speak. They were to look at the words that he had already spoken. And one, one translation says that maybe we should, the best, it would be best understood if, we, if they were simply to remember the words about Christ. So not just what he said, but what other biblical writers have added to the, our knowledge of, of God and Christ in the New Testament. Um, there's a, Gary sent me a question. He had watched a, a, a documentary about, uh, about authors of the, uh, uh, of the New Testament. And he said uh, he found it interesting. He'd never heard of somebody questioning uh, Paul's writing of the gospel or of the uh, book of Colossians. And um, he asked me about it and I sent him a note. Said, yeah, there's a, uh, there are some scholars uh, that have questioned whether or not Paul actually wrote it, which would mean that the, the, it starts off with a lie because it says that Paul wrote it, right? Mm -hmm. So why would you include something in scripture that, that has lies in it? Just asking. I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. Additionally, uh, one of the issues, they said, well, there were small uh, differences in the theology. <laughs> and my comment would be, yeah, there are small differences, but they're not, they're not necessarily different. It's different person, different group, different way of saying things sometimes to make it a, a, apparently abundantly clear to them. As an example, in Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you 
Whereas in Ephesians 5, uh, 8 through 18 through 21, it says, be filled with the Spirit. If, if either of those were to be true in your life, the other one would be true as well. Mm-hmm. It's yep. just a different way of saying it uh, and, and coming to the same conclusion. It's, it's, and so does the word dwell in our hearts? Are we filled with the Spirit? Uh, it should be like the peace of God. It, it, becomes, it ought to become the measure of church life. Before every activity, I think a church should do two things and ask two questions. Is the priest of Christ present in the congregation at this point? And is it consistent? Will, and will it promote the knowledge of the word of Christ? If that's true, then I think the activity ought to continue. If it isn't true, then we need to stop and fix it which means that we might have to deal with issues that, need, that, have, that have been swept under the carpet. We might have to bring some, some sunshine uh, into an area that, that hasn't had light in a long time. And, and we need to make sure that we take care of those issues. You know, sometimes you have to lance the boil in order to get it to, to heal, right? Yeah. It's not, it's not always pleasant. And the results immediately are not always the best looking, but ultimately it's the best thing for the body, right? Yeah. Yep. And so there comes a point in time when we need to address those things. And wisdom in this particular case is, is really has to deal with the spiritual dimension of wisdom, which is related ultimately to, to what? The mind of God. Uh, Paul encourages the the Colossians to express their corporate worship in real wisdom and to encourage others in the context of this wisdom. And and so the word of Christ uh, becomes uh, prominent by the exercising of spiritual gifts, by teaching and exhorting. Teaching and exhorting are two spiritual gifts that are mentioned in a variety of places. One, Romans 12. Second one would be Ephesians 4. In both of those cases. Now, it's also true that often uh, the task of teaching and admonishing uh, is said to be a, a part of the, the task of the Christian leader. But in this particular instance, in Colossians, uh, it's the task of everyone. Also, if we were to look at First um, uh, Thessalonians, let me just get there. Maybe. First Thessalonians chapter five. Sorry, I'm gonna sneeze. It's not gonna be free. Excuse me. Mm. Blew up my newspaper. Probably did. <laughs> Cleaned out all your all of the, uh, the speakers too. That's uh, true. Chapter five, verse fourteen says, "And we urge you, brothers." To warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, and help the weak, and be patient with everyone. That idea of urge you, brothers, to encourage or to warn those who are idle, that's what we're talking about admonishing. All right, we'll we'll dig into this in a a little bit in in just a minute here. But I want to talk to you about specifically the the, um, 
the vehicle that we use to do this. The vehicle that we're to use is that we're to do it in song. That's what scripture says. And it says three particular types of songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Anyone want to take a, a stab at what that means? Okay. Psalms, what, what, is, what is the, what, when you think of Psalms, what do you think of? I think of the book. The books, the Psalms, right. And what is the book of Psalms? Songs. Songs that are scripture set to music. Right. So there are other Psalms throughout scripture, throughout the Old Testament. There are other Psalms that are, in that, are, that are recorded in scripture. But a collection of them is put in the Bible and called the Psalms. Um, so what we can take from this is that anything that is scripture set to music is could be considered a psalm. Uh, when I was uh, uh, in worship music, um, we had uh, we actually had uh, a couple of songs. We had a song that uh, uh, verse fifteen of Colossians uh, three. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all to the glory of God, which is a, a combination of 15 and 17. And then we had another one. Uh, we talked about giving thanks, giving thanks. Uh, and, it, and again, was centered on, around the fact that whatever we do in word or deed, you know, do it all with thanksgiving in your heart to the Lord. Um, so the idea of Psalms... Uh, I think are, is scripture set to music. In addition to that, you have hymns. Now, uh, by the way, uh, there's a guy by the name of uh, Kenneth Osbeck, who is the one who I take most of this from. I think he's probably done the best research that I've seen in this. Um, he actually wrote a book, believe it or not, it's a, a book on children's uh, song or, or uh, music ministry in the church, but he has a whole section in which he delves pretty deeply into the idea of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's probably a, a book from the 1980s, but it's a, it's a wonderful, uh, uh, he has a wonderful uh, study of this. And so hymns are really uh, teach us theology. They, they teach us about who God is. And uh, um, so you could say they're objective in nature. So you have scripture, and then you got an objective Things, things like, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the, you know, the, the flood of, of evil. It, that, that song just teaches us tons and tons about who God is. And so hymns are important to teach us doctrine. One of the biggest problems that the early church had with the Arian uh, heresy, which, which taught that Christ was not of the same essence as God, that he was lower than God, but higher than angels, was that they sang, uh, they had more songs around than, than the Orthodox Church for a long time. So you had the Orthodox Church trying to sing and worship God and singing false theology, hmm. singing, singing bad, bad doctrine. And, and what happens is as you sing that, it starts to catch in your mind. Songs are easily, songs are one of those things that, that seem to, stick with us yep. you know uh in fact uh 
uh, in the end, the last, the second to last chapter of Deuteronomy, God tells Moses to teach the nation of Israel uh, a song. And the song is all about uh, the, the things that are going to happen if they disobey him. <laughs> Isn't that great? I think it's great. Um, let me see if I can quickly find it here. Uh, yeah, I think it might be back up. Okay, it's actually in verse 30, uh, chapter 31, verse, uh, verse 19. Uh, God says to, to Moses and to the nation of Israel, Now write down yourselves this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it so they may witness, uh, it may be a witness for me against them. And then he dropped down in verse, uh, uh, well, continued, when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey in the land that I promised an oath to their forefathers, and when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and difficulties come upon them, this song will testify against, against them because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. songs have a way of sticking with us. Some of us have favorite songs that we have with our, you know, our significant other or the song that we danced at our wedding or uh, we have that song that kind of represents us and our, our you know, our relationship with somebody. Uh, maybe it's, um, it could be a whole variety of different things, but songs have a way of sticking around and the, and the, the message of the song sticks with us. You know, my, uh, my mother-in-law uh, used to sing the Ch Chuck Berry song when she was a youngster. Uh, I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill until she figured out what it was saying. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually Fats Domino. Fats Domino. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. I, I, I apologize. Fats Domino. That's right. <laughs> but it was one of those songs that she thought was just great, you know, until suddenly, and she's suddenly going, Wait a second. That's talking about something. Yeah, I'm not sure that's appropriate. You know. <laughs> so songs have that way of doing, it. and and so objectively, hymns will teach us objective thoughts about God. The last were the spiritual songs, and spiritual songs take a variety of, of forms, but basically they're experiential. So they they talk they they it's about our relationship to God and how we feel about our relationship to God. So it's songs that would be like, I love you, Lord, you know, or uh, songs that say, um, you know, I have a, that, that testify about what our, uh, what has happened to us as a result of, you know, what God has done for us. It's a song, a testimony song. Now, there actually were several branches of, of uh, these songs, the spiritual songs. One of them became a, uh, kind of a, an extemporaneous response. And uh, uh, our charismatic brothers and sisters and, and Pentecostal uh, brothers and sisters have done a great job in what they call a spirit song, in which they are given, uh, th there's usually a two or a three chord rock. Sometimes it could be more than that. And it rocks between those two to three chords. And in the midst of all of that, you then express whatever God lays in your heart about who he is. And how what he's doing there. It could be thank you, Jesus. It could be praise you, Lord. 
It could be uh, uh, bless the father. It could be a whole lot of other things. It could be a lot more than that. And, and it, it, it is the opportunity for us to do what we do when we pray extemporaneously, only it's done to music. I, I've often wondered why is it that the church, the other, the other part of the church, doesn't have a problem with singing songs that are written, but has a real problem with written prayers. You know, because they have no problem with extemporaneous prayers, but they have a real problem with extemporaneous music. And I'm going, hey, you can't, you can't, ha you, you know, it's, it's both is okay. So uh, here's the thing that, that comes in our church service. So how are we doing with our, with our balance between these things? Is the music that's being played in our service that we are participating in, that we are, and again, it should be a participatory thing. If we're participating, participating in it, how often are we participating? How much are we doing? Are the songs psalms? Are they hymns? Are they spiritual songs? Is there a balance? Have we, are we not doing one, but doing other two? Are we only doing one? And depending upon your answer, depends upon how well you're fulfilling what God tells us to do, both here in Colossians and also in Ephesians. Where in Ephesians 5, it tells us, it talks about these three same types of songs. By the way, it never says in the New Testament, nor in the Old Testament, does it give us the notes that were sung or the tune that was sung yeah. or specifically, necessarily, all of the instruments that were included. Although in the Old Testament, we have, we have ram's horns and we have cymbals and we have drums and we have harps and lyres. And so, you know, we've got... Uh, a lot of things we don't find organs there um but that was old testament so so i guess the question re re revolves around this is are we doing our job as a church in singing everything that needs to be sung one of the problems that one of the complaints that the the enemies of luther had is that they said that luther was singing his people into his doctrine he wrote a ton of songs hmm. and, and, and brought in new music into the church. And the result of that was that they were learning doctrine. And the problem we have today is that, is that sometimes we are allowing people to write songs that have no theological background. And the result of that is we get bad theology. Uh, Don Mullen, who uh, many of you don't know, he is a, uh, uh, was and perhaps still is the vice president of uh, Integrity Music out of uh, uh, Alabama. Uh, they they were part of the uh, Integrity and Hosanna Music were back in the 80s and 90s a big. Uh, they were kind of like Bethel is today, yeah. uh, or or uh, uh, the group over in uh, uh, Australia. What's their name? Hillsong. Um, Hillsong. Thank you. They were kind of the Hillsong of the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Um, He's now on the board of the, the school that I did my doctoral work at. And uh, one of the things I remember him saying one time at a, at a luncheon I was in, attended that he spoke at was he said that uh, he, he bemoaned the fact that we don't have good theology in some of our current worship songs. And he said, you know, his, his comment is you need to be a theologian if you're going to write songs. And, and the, the thing is that we are called, all of us, to be theologians, to rightly divide the word of truth. So I'm going to try to get off this because I'm sure that 
this is this is kind of my wheelhouse. I could spend a lot of time in, in this and and try to help. And we'll get and we when we wrap this up as we how are we doing time wise? Yeah, we got time. When we wrap this up, I'm going to give you some some thoughts on this as well. But I want to talk to you about the fact, first of all, that did you notice that Paul does not identify music as a spiritual gift? He also admits a lot of other talents, but he says that we're to teach and admonish. And he tells us to, to do so with gratitude in our hearts to God, which is what is gratitude? Another way of saying what? Thankful. Thankfulness. Yeah. Yeah. And notice where is the song supposed to be? In your heart. In your heart. So it means you need to spend a little time figuring that out and, and getting it in there. Now, when it says that let the word of Christ, or uh, let's see, let the peace. Uh, uh, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Think about that this idea of richly means that you, it ought to feel at home. Does the word of God feel at home in your heart? Yes. Or, well, if it, praise the Lord if it does. Because a lot of times it, it, it feels a little uncomfortable. But God says we should have, it, it should dwell in our hearts. It ought to feel at home, dwelling in our hearts. All right. Um, any questions, thoughts, comments before we go on? Should we sing that song of Moses all the time? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's a pretty, it's a pretty it's wicked pretty good. song. Have you read it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like holy smokes, man. <laughs> really? Now, remember when we did our we did an old testament survey of it's probably been a couple of years now. And what I told you, remember, is that the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch or they're called the Law. Uh they're called uh the Torah. The Torah is probably the best term. The problem is when we translate it into English, we do it, we can't translate it as the law. And law makes it sound like it's just a set of rules. Instead, it really is a way of life. Right. So this is the life that we're supposed to live. And here's, here's God's way of helping us to do that. And then he goes on and he says, now, if you obey me, here are all the blessings you get. If you disobey me, here are all the curses. Here's all the punishment that comes as a result of disobedience. So obey, blessing. Disobey, cursing. What's going to happen is that by the time we get to the prophecies, all the prophetic books, all the prophetic books are saying, uh, Israel, Judah, I got to call you back to the Lord because why? You're not doing it. You're not doing it right. Therefore, what's going to happen? Here are the punishments that I promised you in the first five books. Oops. When you do it right, here are the blessings, but you're not doing it right. Guess what? Yeah. You get the, you get the punishments. All right, so God wants us to understand that when we hide things in his, our hearts, and we can repeat them, and we can dwell on them, uh, for me, uh, for me, one of the, the times that I am the most, that I'm the closest to the Lord is when I'm doing, when, when I'm singing, or when I'm listening to praise and worship music, it just drives me to the to the the throne of grace all the time for me all right let's go on 
So we're told here to uh, to do this with gratitude in our hearts to God, and then it goes on to say, and whatever uh, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord. And then it goes on to say, giving thanks to God the Father through Jesus. So we're to do it in the name of the Lord, and we do it in word or deed. Uh, this is a, a parallel that's kind of rabbinical and in, in concerning in, in the behavior. Uh, it concerned both about behavior and confession. Paul is concerned with consistency of commitment. The two realms, speech and action, word and deed, are what we're talking about. So often in in um, in ancient in the ancient world, when you were worshiping God, a, a god, when you when you performed your religious rites that you had to before your God, it, all God was interested in was that you just did it. But you have to do it with the right attitude. And so often in, in all you had to do was commit to what you were doing at the, at, at the altar, and then you could walk away and do whatever you wanted afterwards. God wanted you to be consistent. And, and, and God the Father says, yeah, I want you to do this consistently, both in word and deed. So not only just at the at church, but all, all, all the way from church as well. And he says, I want you to do this in the name of the Lord. We've talked about this, uh, this idea of, of the name of the Lord. Any uh, any thoughts? Uh, what does it mean? What's his, What's it mean by the name? Well, when a, when a president signs a bill into law, what happens? When he signs a bill, what happens? It becomes law. Why? Because he put his name on it. Uh, when you get a check, uh, I have a, now all my checks, the vast majority of my checks I do electronically, but um, I would get checks from, from clients that would have a rubber stamp on the signature. Was it good? Yeah. Why? Because it was put on there with the authority that this check was going to be paid. So when, a, when you sign a check, it authorizes the withdrawal of money from a bank. It, you're doing it, and the, the person that's doing it in the office that has a rubber stamp is doing it because they have been authorized by someone to put that stamp on the check. Just like someone has authorized us to put Christ's name on us. Check. So what happens when we misuse God's authorization? Don't we call that godly righteousness? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we get in trouble. <laughs> I think we get in trouble when we go outside the bounds. So we do this because we, we believe when we pray, we say, I, we say, and we, we ask this in the, the name of the Lord Jesus, or we ask this in Jesus' name. We are saying we are committing his name, his authority to that prayer. We're saying we believe this is the way it ought to be because we, and we're saying this because we have the authority of Christ to do so, which is kind of scary sometimes. Sometimes we ask for some pretty foolish things. I have to include myself at the top of the list. 
So far, I haven't become a millionaire. Just thought I'd let you guys know that. <laughs> no working on it. But... So, uh, John, John 14 uh, says, I, uh, J- Jesus says, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me anything in my name and I will do it. And, and the, the parallel is the, the top part. I will do whatever you ask in my name so the Son may glorify the Father. If what we ask for does not glorify the Father, we're not asking it in his will. Okay, silence, I know. No, it's just... Uh... I agree. I think we, we struggle sometimes with this. I know I do. And you know, the, 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 the family name is one of those things is important. Parents try to teach their children to honor the family name. Uh, you know, that it just takes a few minutes for a person to disgrace that name. And it can take his ancestors, that, that it took his ancestors years to build. And it's really tough when that happens. Because we tend to, to take God's and use God's authority for the wrong things at times. Think about this. Uh, the name Judah in Hebrew means praise. It's a very respectable name. And, and it, it has a lot of meaning to it. Now, the New Testament equivalent or one of the equivalents of the name Judah is the name Judas. How many people you know name their kid Judas today? <laughs> How many people you know name their, their son Adolf? You know, uh, it can happen that when we're not careful, uh, we can put a bad spin on God's name. We need to be careful about what we ask and what we do. Because God wants us to bring glory to his name. I know I know I was going to find this, this. I couldn't find it until now. Colossians, in Colossians, there are five. Uh, there are six references to the, the term Thanksgiving in Colossians, chapter one, two verses, verse th- three, verse twelve, chapter two, verse seven, chapter three, verse fifteen, chapter three, verse seventeen, and chapter four, verse two, all about Thanksgiving. It's interesting. That not only is it all about Thanksgiving, but who is writing this? Who wrote the book? Paul. Paul. What was Paul's circumstances when he wrote this book? Jail. Jail. Yeah. Let's be thankful in jail. <laughs> My, I, I'm always reminded of what it must have been like. You know, I, I'm pretty sure that, that Paul, I think Paul probably in, in Rome, had people helping provide him for food because often the jails didn't provide food or if they did, it wasn't very good. And if you're going to last for any length of time, you need somebody, you either need money yourself or you needed someone to provide. Um, and if you're in jail, they're going to take your money, right? Just thinking about how this might work out. So Paul does this. And as a result of this, he, he is 
being provided food and being provided sustenance. And in the midst of all of that, he's going through being chained to guards all the time. He's thankful. And I complain when I get a hangnail. Oh, Lord, you don't love me anymore. Okay, I know I'm the only one that does that. Oh, so was he thankful in his heart? Yeah, uh, I think he was thankful in his heart. And yeah, I think that it, it played out in his responses, too. Having a thankful spirit has got to be, uh, it's tough sometimes, you know? We all want to complain. Or maybe I'm the only one of us. No. <laughs> but I, I, I sense that sometimes we don't spend enough time thanking God and thinking about what Andy. he's done for us, that when we do that, it changes Andy. It makes us more thankful. And, it's, and we become thankful in, in all that we do around people. I'm more generous when I'm thankful. You know? I'm out in a restaurant, and if I'm thankful for what God provided me, I often leave a, it seems like I seem to leave a, leave a bigger tip than I do when I'm not thankful. I'm kinder to people when I'm thankful about what God's provided for me. I'm more patient. I know I'm not patient very often, I understand. <laughs> no. God wants us to be thankful. And I think when it happens, it changes our hearts. It changes our response. All right. Let's take some time and just finish up uh, with some thoughts about contemporary, about Christian worship today, both uh, regardless of whether it's traditional, contemporary, we use contemporary to mean a particular style versus the today. Um, but worship has always been and always will be uh, a response to what God is doing, what God has done and what God is doing in our hearts and our lives. Our worship provides guidance for our lives because we hear the word of God applied and it brings us awareness to the needs of others as we pray for them. And it presents opportunities for us to in expressing our repentance and in expressing our gratitude and thanksgiving to others. It also prepares us for spiritual battle. That's what worship does. Worship provides guidance in our lives. It brings us awareness of the needs of others. It presents opportunities to express our faith. And it prepares us for spiritual battle. I've been, there have been times when I have been overwhelmed by a particular song because, uh, in a particular set of words, because as I've been worshiping, I recognize what God has done for me. Good. And I recognize that he is in the midst of whatever it is I'm going through, the right set of words come to me as a result of my worship. And I find strength. I find help. So we're told here that there are two key elements of worship, teaching and admonishing. That centers really kind of on the word of Christ and the singing of, of that, the singing of praises. That's the thing that we're told to do. Now, interesting, 
words play a, a particularly important uh, role in contrast to primitive worship where the action was dominant. The word seems to have little uh, role at all in early uh, ancient worship of not Christ, of not God. But first, because faith comes by hearing, the word must be proclaimed. And secondly, because the response in the words is specifically a human way by which man can make himself known to himself and to others that he's received the word. There's a, a writer that sometimes I absolutely love and sometimes I absolutely hate. Her name is Marva Dawn. She's written rather extensively on worship. And every once in a while, I go, boy, you really nailed this, Marva. Um, she, she talks about, she criticizes something called, inter, what she calls entertainment evangelism. And her thesis is this, that we've dumbed down the truth of God that reveals God's splendor and grace in the face of human depravity with false efforts to feel better about ourselves. She goes on to say, to attract people from our culture, some Christian churches depend on glitz and spectacle and technological toys rather than on the strong substantive declaration of the word of God and its authoritative revelation for our lives. The danger that we're, the danger is that worship becomes simply a performance and an exhibition that focuses on us instead of God. Worship that does not point the person to the Lord, to the Father, to, the whole, to, to God the Son, is worship that's entertainment of the person on stage. That's one of the reasons why I always talk about the fact that if you're a worship, if you're leading worship in a church, your job is to prompt worship in the congregation. You are prompters. Shakespeare says, all the world is the stage. And I say, yes, it is. And when we're in church, everybody that's in the auditorium are worshipers. And those that are on stage are simply prompters. They're helping us in our worship, our effort to worship God. For many, worship becomes a time when, when God is supposed to meet our needs rather than a time when we give glory to God. Now, in the midst of giving glory to God, can he provide for our needs? Yes, but that shouldn't be the, the focus of worship. Worship always ought to be about him. And it's always a response. We never start worship. We always do worship as a response to what God's been doing and is doing in our lives. Worship is not to be about us, but about God. Word, the word is God. The wisdom is God's. And the thanks that are due are, are for God alone. There's another writer. His name is Keck. He says, we blow up balloons and dance in aisles and march behind banners. We have turned to jazz and sung ditties whose theological content makes a nursery rhyme sound like Thomas Aquinas. That's, that's pretty bad. But it is not enough to make things livelier, or is it to set music, uh, our, or to set music our, our aspirations and agendas. We can do better than that, and we must. For then the truth of God is to make is made actual in Christ and attests in the gospel evokes that truthful praise of God. Christian worship enacts an alternative to secularism, which otherwise deludes us with its promises. Worship that centers on the word of God and the word of Christ should lead to a more mature faith. 
And, and when, as I close out our time together, I want to talk about eight particular marks of, I think, of, of, that show maturity in our faith. Um, we can use these to test the wisdom of our faith and whether our worship generates this kind of maturity. Does the, our worship generate trust, trusting and believing in Christ? in the deity of Christ, in the humanity of Christ, in God's unconditional love, in both his transcendence and his eminent or closeness, in the reconciling of humans, uh, suffering in God's love. Those are things that, that, how are we doing with that? Are, are, number two, are we experiencing the fruits of faith? Mature Christians express a sense of well-being, security, and peace. How, how are we doing with that? Are we integrating faith and life? Mature Christians filter all aspects of life, what they see, hear, think, and their family, their devotion, their vocation, their relationship, their finances, their po politics, their ethical decisions through their faith in Christ. I had a, a teacher used to say, we put it through a grid that we create. And the, the word of God should create the grid. If it fits through the grid, we're in good shape. If it doesn't fit through the grid, we ought to get rid of it. Is our worship seeking to bring about spiritual growth in our lives? Have we moved beyond the childhood understanding of faith and become teenagers or even adults in our faith? Worship should lead to greater understanding of theological truths. There have been times when I've been listening to a song, I've listened to guys preach, and I can walk away from that and say, yeah, it was good, but unless I've taken really close notes, I missed something. Something doesn't stick with me, but if I listen to a song and it impacts me and it goes, wow, I never thought of that concept quite that way before. That's helping me grow. Worship should lead to greater understanding of theological truths. Now, <clears throat> we must guard against surrendering intellectual and spiritual depth in our music. Marva Dawn, again, she says that shallow music forms shallow people. Mm. Remember that a lot of people used to do all of their study out of hymn books. Are the songs that we sing, are they biblical? Do they teach us biblical truths? Or are they all about Jesus is my boyfriend? You know what I'm saying? When I say that, Jesus, the songs are Jesus is my boyfriend, he's my best friend, he's this, he's that. And, and it's all true to some degree. But if that's all you ever sing about is Jesus is my boyfriend, you've missed so much more about who Jesus is. All right. Does it nurture faith in your community? Mature wit Christians witness to their faith and nourish one another in community. Are we doing that? Do we hold life-affirming values? Christian, mature Christians believe that life is good and should be affirmed, and they take responsibility for the welfare of others. They care about the plight of those in faraway places and those that are close to home. Mature Christians advocate social change. 
Mature Christians believe that faith demands global concerns, that the church belongs in the public square. And they struggle with how to be prophetic and create justice for those who cannot speak or act for themselves. Are we doing that? Is our worship? When we say that, that every tongue and every tribe and every nation, every culture will one day worship before God, does that, do we not realize that that means that they're just as, they're just like us? They're called by God to come into his presence. They have the same rights and, and, and privileges that, that we have. And then lastly, mature Christians, are we acting and serving? They don't simply become advocates, but they personally get involved in serving. Are you doing something? If you are, praise the Lord. If you're not, let's get out there and get busy, man. It's not about us enjoying the service. It's, it would be so much better to hear, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And woe is me, I am a person of unclean lips. Wouldn't that be amazing to walk out of a service that way? Yeah. Not to walk out and say, man, that was a great song. I really enjoyed that, that story the pastor told. Worship is, worship is God enjoying us. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, the shorter catechism of Westminster uh, Catechism is that we are to um, worship God and to enjoy him forever that's all it is we offer good news how are we doing with that Psalm 51 15 says oh Lord open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise I hope today when we leave, as we go about the rest of the day, we'll, we'll figure out how God ought to open our lips and our mouths so we can declare his praise. We ought to live in a way, this is what I'm talking about. Worship for me, as I understand worship, should create in each of us spiritual formation, which is an, which is an old term which is becoming used again. But it basically means this, I'm becoming closer to Christ. I am being discipled. I am a becoming a better follower of his. When we do that, God's honored and God's blessed. All right. I think I probably beat us up enough for one more time. Any thoughts or comments? I, know. I think that um, sometimes the service does, um, the, the, the song part of it makes you feel good. And you can't wait next week to get another feel good and then sometimes it sets in your heart yeah. you know and it speaks to you and that's that's the difference a lot of times in worship where you're just feeling good which is nothing wrong with that but then he it resonates in your heart um because it's like the spirit of you know, the holy spirit speaking to you and it, it gives you a whole different perspective than, you know, uh, because a lot of times people say, well, I go to church because it makes me feel good for the week. Well, um, 
that's all good and dandy, but it, you know, you, you want, you, you want it to sit in your heart sooner or yeah. later at times. Yep. If you want to feel good, I can listen to the Doobie Brothers. Jesus is just all right with me. You know. Yeah. That's a good one. Right. Yeah, but that song says, it's just all right. Not perfect. That's the problem with it. Yeah. When instead we are uh, uh, thanking someone that's perfect. And hopefully the perfection reflect our behaviors and our thinking and our believing. And when people see us, see Christ, you know. Because we should be feeling good. If Paul can affirm that from a dungeon, yeah, how do you, you know, how do you sing praise after being beaten and thrown into a, ju a dungeon in Philippians? Remember Philipp in, in the Philippian jail, Paul and Silas. I, I still yeah. see you, Daryl. I still think about the, this with uh, them. Can you imagine Silas sitting there? He's all beat up. He's probably got both eyes puffy. His back is a mess. Probably can't lean against anything. And Paul says, hey, Silas, what? I got a great idea. What? Let's sing. But isn't, on. if I'm Silas, isn't that you wrapping yourself in God? What's that? Isn't that really wrapping yourself in God? <laughs> yeah, it is. But I you know, singing... That, that tough time where everything's all crazy and you're like, you know, I have God, so let's just talk about him. Well, yeah, him that, that's what Paul I think, is pointing out there. I just, I think if I yeah. saw this, I'm going, you got to be out of your mind, Paul. You know, <laughs> you want me to sing right now? I can hardly breathe. You know, every breath. Or he's mad. He's mad he didn't think of it first. <laughs> Could be. Could be. <laughs> Or maybe saw maybe Silas is the one say hey, Paul let's sing and Paul's got to go oh. you know you're right we should I don't want to but we should every time there's been a major movement of the Holy Spirit there's been a a major movement in our music this is an interesting uh, thought I'll just mention this as we as we kind of wrap up this whole idea but God says. Every, or I think we can prove if you look at every time there's been a major movement of the Holy Spirit, there's been a major change or a major addition to the, the music we've we had in our Christian hymnal. Um, starting with, uh, well, just think back, the Welsh revival had a huge impact in songs in England. Uh, Luther, huge impact in songs that the, the Germans sang in the Lutheran Church. Wesley, both John and Charles, huge impact in the songs that were sung as a result of that. During the Great Awakening, a great spiritual revival of songs happened. During the Second Great Awakening, another great revival of songs that happened as a result of that. I believe that uh, the Jesus movement personally um, in the 60s, we saw a huge movement of the spirit. And out of that came Maranatha music, came integrity. Um, 
today we have, you know, Hillsong, we have, uh, and, uh, you know, God's just done amazing things with Hillsong, regardless of whether they get it all right or not. That's not the issue. The music, some of it is just so powerful. Bethel as well. Again, some of their things, sometimes I kind of scratch my head at some of their theology, but by and large, I'm going, they, they have some songs that are just absolutely stunning and just really speak to my heart. Some of the old hymns came from Wesley during Moody's uh, revival. You had um, uh, Iris Danke who uh, wrote a, a number of songs as a result of that. Moody had a great... So every time there's been a major move, uh, it seems as though God has done some major things in our hymnody. Um, so uh, look you know, for one that. Of the, one of the things that uh, I'd... Re- uh, I recommend that I just, I just came upon this just this week. It's uh, the album's called wild heart mm. and it's, it's by uh, Kim Walker Smith. Mm. And, uh, uh, but the, the one song that really has, you know, got to me is it's called you'll always be. And it's about Christ always being with you and giving you peace and tough times. And, uh, and it, it it's moving. It's a, and when you when you YouTube it, you catch her live singing it live, and you can Ooh. see. I mean, she's got the, the assembly there in the church that she's singing it in. I mean, she's got them, totally wired in. That's great. Music can be a, music has been used both positively and negatively, for years. Think about during the. Uh, the rise of Adolf Hitler, you know, he had particular types of music that he liked and it moved the people and you can move people with music. The question that we have to do in our, in our setting is make sure that the music, while it moves us, that it also speaks truth. All right. Hey guys. Time to leave, huh? Yeah. Have a good week. Work.